Good evening, everyone. My name is Reginald Harris. I'd like to welcome you to the Poe Room and the Pratt Library for tonight's uh, program with Tanahashi Coates. Um, this is part of our continuing program, bringing authors and uh, uh, speakers on current events to the library. You'll notice we have our uh, lovely program compass over there on the table, as well as some flyers for some upcoming programs, including uh, Tavis Smiley's appearance here on March 5th. And I also want to mention that um, National Book Award winner um, Annette Gordon-Reed, author of The Hemingses of Monticello, is also going to be here. She'll be here um, next week on the 22nd, and that should be really fantastic. But tonight, it is with great pleasure that I introduce um, a friend of the library, um, a fantastic publisher, founder of Black Classic Press, Mr. Paul Coates. Good. How's everyone doing? Good, good, good. Um, my introduction is, is fairly short. I have the pleasure of introducing um, Tanahasi, who is uh, is one of my great sons. One of my great sons. I have five sons, and I have the pleasure to introduce him. And before that, let me introduce uh, Tanahasi's mother. Uh, all things in order. This is uh, Cheryl Waters. <laughs> Um, I think Tanahasi, as he uh, deals with the book, you'll see it's it's kind of a guy story. You know, it's about guys and stuff like that. Um, but in that story, engracing literally every page, whether it's spoken, is uh, Churl, who the times that I got tired of of Tanahasi, really, really tired of him, she was always there um, to deal with him. So in partnership, um, we're pleased to have Tanahasi uh, back home in Baltimore. He is a product of uh, Baltimore, as he'll read and as he'll tell you, a product of Baltimore uh, schools and proof positive of how important our schools are and how good our schools actually are, the people in them are. Uh, Tanahasi currently uh, is a contributing editor to The Atlantic. He also writes for uh, The Nation. He is formerly a, um, a contributing writer to Time uh, magazine. He freelances for a number of publications, but probably most in addition to his autobiography, he's best known for his blog, Tanahasi.com, which I encourage everyone to uh, visit when you leave here, get your fingers in motion, hit your computer. Uh, I spent a lot of time on that blog, okay, um, <clears throat> which, which, which are the new electronic libraries uh, for us today. We're pleased, again, to be here at Enoch Pratt and pleased to introduce uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, speaking of self-promotion, I'm Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, it's a beautiful introduction. It's something to be uh, introduced uh, by your father, um, at any point, um, when you were a kid like I was, um, and I don't think anybody was counting on your father ever introducing you uh, for anything, um, it, it's a real treat. It, it is stunning, stunning. I think my parents will attest to this, to be here in Baltimore City Central Library um, giving this reading. Um, and I'll outline why it was so stunning um, as I go through the reading um, tonight. 
my dad, you started off by saying I was a product of, of um, Baltimore City public schools, um, which, I, which I was. Um, a reluctant product. The, stu- the schools gave a lot to me, but I was not interested in giving much back to the schools. Um, it's just amazing to be back here. It really, really is amazing to be back here. I've been all around the country uh, reading from this book, and I, I think you know it's been decently received. Um, but I think it gets a special reception here um, from people who understand the city. This book is about my father's efforts to bring uh, two young black boys uh, to manhood during the late 80s um, and the early 90s, a very challenging period uh, in the city. I know that um, the city still has its issues today, but that, I think, was, was a particularly uh, harsh time uh, for young black men. Um, I think my parents spent a lot of time afraid, just, just desperately afraid of their sons ending up in jail, ending up getting killed, doing something, or whatever. Um, we talk so much about the crises amongst young black boys today. I wanted to talk about the last time we had this discussion and just give uh, some sort of narrative about that. I'm going to read um, from the first chapter, which I think, uh, A, introduces the three main characters in the book, my dad, uh, my father, um, I'm sorry, my dad, my brother, excuse me, I'm getting confused here. Uh, my dad, my older brother, and myself. Um, and also outlines one of the big themes in the book, and that is how the issue of violence just um, alters the way young black boys see the world. Um, so this is from the first chapter. And this begins with a particularly violent incident that I think sets in motion um, so much of what happens for the rest of the book. Um, they tore the Baltimore Civic Center down, didn't they? It's not here. Oh, it's still here? Okay, all right. Under new name. What's it called now? Okay, this is from when it was the Baltimore Civic Center. And um, all we wanted was to go, me and my older brother, all we wanted to do was go see a wrestling match there. Um, it's about going to see um, uh, professional wrestling there and what, what happened. When they caught us down on Charles Street, they were all that I'd heard. They did not wave banners, flash amulets, or secret signs. Still, I could feel their awful name advancing out of the law. They were remarkable. They sported the Stetsons of Hollis, but with no gold. They were shadow and rangy, like they could three-piece you, jab, uppercut jab from a block away. They had no eyes. They shrieked and jeered, urged themselves on, wildly chanted, rock and roll is here to stay. When Murphy Holmes closed in on us, the moon ducked behind its black cloak and Fells Point dilettantes shuffled in boots. It was their number that tipped me off. No one else rolled this deep. We were surrounded by six to eight, but up and down the street, packs of them took up different corners. I was spaced out as usual, lost in the caves of chaos and the magic of Optimus Prime's vanishing trailer. It took some time for me to get clear. Big Bill made them a block away, grew tense, but I did not understand. Even after they touched my older brother with the right cross, so awkward, I thought it was a greeting. I didn't catch on until his arms were pumping the wind. Bill was out, and Murphy Holmes had turned on me. In those days, West Baltimore was factional, segmented into crews who took their names from their local civic associations. 
Walbrook Junction ran everything until they met North and Pulaski, who craven and honorless would punk you in front your girl. Above them all, Murphy Holmes waved the scepter. The scale of their banditry made them mythical wherever they walked, Old Town, Shake and Bake, the harbor, they busted knees and melted faces. Across the land, the name rang out. Murphy Holmes beat niggas with gas nozzles. Murphy Holmes split backs and poured in salt. Murphy Holmes moved with one eye, flew out on bat wings, performed dark rites atop Drew Hill. I tried to follow, but they cut me off. A goblin stepped out from the pack. Where the fuck you going, bitch? And stunned me with a straight right. About that time, my converse turned to cleats, and I bolted, leaving dents and divots in the concrete. The streetlights flickered, waved as I broke ankles, blew by, and when the bandits reached to check me, I left only imagination and air. I doubled back to Lexington Market. There was no sign of Bill. I reached for a payphone. Dead, we just got banked. Okay, son, find an adult. Stand next to an adult. I'm in front of Lexington Market. I've lost Bill. Son, I'm on the way. I had crossed a border. This was more than my father's black leather belt. I knew how that would end. But word to Tucker's kobolds, this thing falling out across the way. Lost boys with the stake in only each other, stretching down the block in packs, berserking everywhere, was awful and random. I stood near a man about my father's age, waiting at a bus stop like age could actually shield me. He looked over at me unfazed and then back across the street at the growing fray of frenzied youth. We'd, we'd come out that night in search of the wrestlers who were the latest sensation. They elevated bar fights to a martial art. We'd rush the ring, all juiced on jeers and applause, white music blaring, Van Halen hair waving in the wind and raised their chins until their egos were eye-level with God. Moves were invented, named, patented, and feared. Heaven help Bob Backlund caught in the camel clutch. You could find us noon on Saturdays, sprawled out on the living room floor, adjusting the hanger behind our second-hand color TV until the fabulous Freebirds, Baby Doll, and Ron Garvin emerged from the wavy lines and static. The wrestlers barnstormed the country, perfecting their insane number. They were confused. They ran it with the rhythm of black preachers, wore silk robes, bikinis, and spangled belts, carried parasols, and recited poetry. Glossy mags sprung up from nothing, spread their gospel, their scowling mag, their scowling mugs, their hollow threats and lore. They gave dressing room interviews punctuated by jabs at the air. Whole histories were pillaged, myths bastardized until Hercules Hernandez stepped off Olympus and the Iron Sheik delivered the Mideast to the Midwest. They held summits and negotiations, but all of them ended in a rain of blows. Other fans had their Hulksters or the Golden Von Erics, but for me, only the American dream could endure. He waddled down the aisle, bathed in applause and fireworks. His gut poured over his bikini trunks. His eyes were black histories. The horsemen would tie the dream to the ropes, beat him until his hair was a mop of bloody blonde. I'd cringe and pound the floor, yelling for him to get up. But Bill, he always rooted for villains and cackled as Ric Flair strutted the ring, flipping his wig of platinum blonde. 
Then the dream would dig in, reverse figure fours, throw bionic elbows and sunny liston rights. In the midst of the fleeing adversaries, the battered Tully, Tully Blanchards and shattered Andersons, he'd look out at the crowd gone mad and snatch the mic like he was KRS-One. It's me, the great, the king of the ring. Like I told you, the dream is professional wrestling. I have been to the mountaintop, and it will take a hell of a man to knock me off. We had to see them. But that road went right through my father, whose only point in life was toil. The man worked seven days a week. Big Bill called him the Pope, for weekly he issued sweeping edicts like he had a line straight to God. He outlawed eating on Thanksgiving under pain of lecture. He disavowed air conditioning, VCRs, and Atari. He made us cut the grass with a hand-powered mower. In the morning, he'd play NPR and solicit our opinions just to contravene and debate. Once, over a series of days, he did the math on Tarzan and the Lone Ranger until at six, I could see the dull taint of colonial power. I am sure this is what brought him comically to our side. With two tickets to live pro wrestling, he offered a gift and a joke. Go see Kamala, the Ugandan giant, and you will understand, as I do, that that nigga is from Alabama. <laughs> At the Baltimore Arena, we were in full effect. We peered down from cheap seats so high that the ring was our personal gift box. There were white people everywhere, and this was the most I'd ever seen of them. They wore caps and jeans sliced into shorts, herded kids hot dogs and popcorn. I thought they looked dirty, and this made me racist and proud. I'd like to tell you what immediately happened next, but I don't remember. I was open, and I wanted to cheer the bird man, resplendent in wraparound shades, a jerry curl, and fluorescent gold and blue spandex. He was always oblivious to his theme music. His tune was internal. And maybe that night he dipped and glided toward the ring, flapping his arms and talking to the parakeets perched on each of his shoulders. I wanted to see the dream, who was at the height of his feud with the horsemen and outnumbered, had taken to guerrilla warfare, masks, capes, ambushes, beef extended into parking lots, driveways, and dream dates. But I lost it all out there. And when I dig for that night, all that emerges are the tendrils of Murphy Holmes, how they dug into my brother's head. He was already a kid of the streets. But this highway robbery, this thievery of your own person pushed him towards something else. He was touched by the desperate and now fully comprehended the stakes. I know that my mother and father saved me. Pulled up in their silver rabbit sometime after I had made the call, that dad ran off into the swarming night to find his eldest son, and for the first and only time, I was afraid for him. I know that Bill's mother, Linda, swooped down to the harbor and found Bill first, shuttled him back out to their crib in Jamestown. I know that Bill returned to our house on Tioga days later, and when I told him how I dusted Murphy Holmes, how I was on that kid flash shit, he was just incredulous, full they let you get away so they could chase me. <laughs> so um, that's, um, that's from the first chapter. I'm going to keep going because actually the next part is, um, is right, right after that. What, what, what happens is um, from the book, a series of events unfold. Um, 
I think from a desire, from a conflict, a desire for us, for us to protect ourselves, to do what we had to do to protect ourselves, uh, living in West Baltimore at that particular in time, but also um, from the demands that our parents put on us um, in terms of what it would mean to be uh, a respectable and respected adult. Um, and as I hinted at, uh, they, they were very demanding. <laughs> um, I think you'll see some of that in this next reading. If the newspapers my father left around the house were true, the greater world was obsessed over Challenger and the SNL scandal. But we were another country fraying at the seams. All the old rules were crumbling around us. The statistics were dire and off-recited. One in 21 killed by one in 21. More of us in jail than college. A cottage industry sprung up to consider our fate. Jawanza Kanjufu was large and promised answers. At conferences, black boys were assembled. At schools, we were herded into auditoriums. At home, mothers summoned us to dinner tables, and there they delivered the news. Our time was short. My family lived in a row house in the slope of Tioga Parkway in West Baltimore. There was a small kitchen, three bedrooms and three bathrooms, but only one that anybody ever wanted to use. All of us slept upstairs. My folks in a modest master, my two sisters, Chrissy and Kelly, went back from the Mecca in an area where Dad also stored his books. There was a terrace out back with a rotting wooden balcony. I almost died out there one day, leaning against the crumbling wood I tumbled headlong but caught myself out on the back door roof and came down, lucky feet first, to the ground. My room was the smallest and always checkered with scattered volumes of World Book, Childcraft, Dragon's Lance, and Narnia. I slept on bunk beds made from thick pine, shared the bottom with my baby brother Menelik. Big Bill, as in all things, was up top. By mere months, he was my father's first son, but he turned even this minor advantage into heraldry. He began his sentences with, as the oldest son, and sought to turn all his younger siblings into warriors. Bill was never scared. He had a bop that moved the crowd and preempted beef. When bored, he'd entertain himself, cracking on your busted fade, your acne, or your off-brand kicks. In those days, Crazy Chucky threatened our neighborhood. Whenever we lined up for five on five, he took every tackle personal. Every block was an invitation to scrap. Once he pulled a metal stake from the ground, swung it at Fat Wayne until he retreated all the way into our living room. But that was when my father came out and revealed the face of, this is not a game. Chucky cursed and waved the stake. Then he stalked off. That night, I lay on the bottom, on the bottom bunk, replaying it all for Bill. But then that fall... Chucky killed his father, got gaffled by the Jakes, and disappeared into the netherworld of Boys Village or Hickey Juvenile. Private school Stevie lived two doors down from us. I'd sit outside playing with his G.I. Joes until I realized that this made me a target. Across the street was Mundarmin Mall, the fashion seat of West Baltimore, the pit of sex, beatdowns, and cool. Every window glittered with leather, fur, sterling, and stickers with large red numbers and slash marks. But the price tags and the honeys made boys turn killer. One misstep onto some brother's suede pumas, and the jihad begins. In those days, cocaine was the air, 
And though I never saw a fiend fire up, the smoke darkened everything, turned our homey town into a bazaar of cheap ornaments, bought expensively, a Gomorrah on the inner harbor. A young man's worth was the width of his blonde cable-linked chain. The space between two, three, then four-finger rings marked footmen from Calvary, Calvary from the great gentry of this darker age. In all our dreams, we cruised the avenue in black Cherokee Jeeps, then parked at the corner of hot and live, our systems beating eardrums, pumping Latoya and sucker MCs. Even I shared those dreams and I was only 10. While I was hobbled by preteen status and basic nature, Big Bill was enthralled by the lights. This was the summer of 86. KRS-One laid siege to Queens Bridge. I would stand in my bedroom, throwing up my hands, reciting the words of Todd Smith, walking down the street to the hardcore beat while my JVC vibrates the concrete. Bill and my brother John spent all summer bussing tables. Bill schemed on a fat rope, one that would dangle from his neck like a sin. But his money was young, and he could not stomach the months of layaway. So he returned from the mall with two mini Ziploc bags, each the size of a woman's fist, each glimmering like him in the light. They held massive rings, one adorned with a golden kite, another spanning two fingers molded into a dollar sign. He flashed them before me, and I was caught by how the glowing metal made him swell inside his own skin. He was profiling, lost in all his glory, when Dad stepped to him. Son, they're fake. Son, you've been had. (laughs) Bill, you're bugging. This is 14 carat. I paid cash money. Dad, son, son, let's have him melted down and tested. If it's even 10 carats or more, I'll pay you for the rings with interest. Bill's head went reeling. The dream was suddenly within reach. He saw a gold herringbone spread over his black BVD t-shirt. And when he bopped through Mundam and Mall, Jennies would jump on his jock and soldiers would collapse or salute. In the order of Slick Rick, Bill would wear the scarlet robe. So he agreed to my father's proposition, convinced he was on the better end. We were young, drunk on ourselves, and could not know that all the alleys we took as original, he'd already stepped through. He found a place to smelt the gold and do the math. And I can't tell you what was worse, the negative results or Dad's rueful chuckle and sermon. Afterwards, we went over to Mundaman, and Dad had Bill point out the merchants. Then he walked over to the glass counter, brandished the results and spoke magic words. The magic words were fraud, black community, and state's attorney. (laughs) Big Bill never felt the same about gold again. My father was conscious man. He stood a solid six feet, was handsome, mostly serious, rarely angry. Weekends, he scooted out at six in the morning and drove an hour to the Mecca, where he guarded the books and curated the history in the exalted halls of the Moreland Spingarn Research Center. He was modest, brown slacks, pale yellow shirt, beige clocks, and a hair cut by his own hand. But at night, he barbecued tofu, steamed basmani, and thought mostly of sedition. He'd untuck his shirt and descend into the cellar, then combed through the layers of ancient arcana. 
He collected out-of-print texts, obscure lectures, and self-published monographs by writers like J.A. Rogers, Dr. Ben, and Drusilla Houston, great seers who returned Egypt to Africa and recorded our history when all the world said we had none. These were words that they did not want us to see. The lost archive, secret collections, folders worn yellow by water and years. But my father brought them back. From the day we touched these stolen shores, he'd explain to anyone who'd listen, they infected our minds. They deployed their phrenologists, their backward Darwinists, and forged a false knowledge to keep us down. But against the demonology, there were those who battled back. Universities scorned them. Compromised professors scoffed at their name. So they published themselves and hawked their knowledge at street fairs, churches, and bazaars. For their efforts, they were mostly forgotten. Their great works languished out of print, while those they sought to save grew fat on integration and amnesia. Dad tracked the autodidacts and the relatives of the ones who'd passed. Over tea in their living room, he unfurled his ambition. He proposed restoring the lost geniuses to their esteemed chairs in the university without walls through a publishing operation he built from a saddle-stitched stapler, a tabletop press, and a Commodore 64. Never had publishing been so radical. He called this basement operation Black Classic Press, and for the Coates family, there was no escape. All that house was bent by the mad dream of mass resurrection. He covered the crib with knowledge until rooms overflowed with books whose titles promised militant action and returned to glory. He found others like him, formed collectives, held festivals in honor of Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey and the taking of arms. Brothers and sisters would drum and dance. Poets revealed words with teeth. Even the food was conscious. Dad just played the back, peering from behind his table, covered with African cloth and an awesome spread of books brought back from the dead. This bounty drew the survivors, the ones who'd outlasted Hoover and COINTELPRO. They approached the table with expectations so great that they dispensed with English, opting for Swahili, Arabic, or Twi. All week they swept the streets, worked daycare, drove buses, taught piano, counseled the high school youth. You would know them by their long dreads, their stoicism, the scent of sandalwood and licorice. They would see me hustling books at these affairs with my or Big Bill and go to school because the movement was all that they were. They'd start with the significance of Nkrumah or assail us for not carrying books by Dr. Clark. They'd pause for libations, shout for Bunchy Carter, Nat Turner, and Aunt Grace. Then mellowed by the ancestors, they would smile. I was Coates' boy, though they could not calculate which one. I was young and unconcerned with why Denmark Vesey did not come off, how the Belgians tackled Lumumba, or the slave king Sakura's return. But out on the block, the hoppers draped themselves in starter, Diodora and Lottos. Then they'd roll out onto corners and promptly clutch their nuts. Big Bill was there. He rolled through the streets in a brown puff leather and captained a minor gang of Mundaman kids. When bored, they brought the ruckus, snatching bus tickets and issuing beatdowns at random. They gave no reasons. They published no manifestos. This was how they got down. This was the ritual.
They spent all summer hunting for girls. The Jennies would catwalk through Mundaman and stonewash with wide red hands spray painted across their asses. They gilded their namesakes in triple bamboo earrings. And when they heard you call out, hey, yo, shorty, come here. They did not look back to flip a bird. They did not crack smiles for anything. Their focus was on their hair, mounds and mounds of hair, gelled, fried, French rolled, finger waved, extended into a dyed and glittering crown. They were of the moment. They took one look at West Baltimore and understood that they were the best of it. So they walked like they were all that mattered, like they had no time. You had to be so much harder back then. You could not bop through Park Heights like the second coming of Peanut King. Even the skating rinks demanded six deep. Lexington Terrace was hot with gonorrhea. Teen pregnancy was the fashion. Husbands were Audi. Fathers were ghosts. Um, so that's it. That's um, from the first chapter of... Um, um, that's from the first chapter of uh, my memoir. Thank you, Mr. Coates. Thank, Thank you, you, guys. Mr.